Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice, produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage Endowment. The Ground Truth series is part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage and Diamonds, the Environmental Law Podcast. Environmental justice, a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice, dates back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of Ground Truth, Eli's own Ariel King will meet with key organizers and leaders of the 1991 First National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit to reflect on how EJ has evolved since the historical summit. The First National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit resulted in the publication of the seminal 17 Principles of Environmental Justice. Today's episode honors and celebrates the 30-year anniversary of the Principles publication by taking a look at how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Thank you, Heather. I am Ariel King, the Environmental Justice Staff Attorney at the Environmental Law Institute. I'm honored to be here today to honor the 30th anniversary of the publication of the 17 Principles of Environmental Justice with Charles Lee from the EPA Office of Policy and Bernice Miller-Travis of WE Act and Metropolitan Group. And here's some background on each of our guests. Bernice Miller-Travis is a longtime environmental justice advocate and co-founder of WE Act for Environmental Justice, a northern Manhattan community-based organization. She currently serves as the Executive Vice President for Environmental and Social Justice of Metropolitan Group. She has a vast experience as a civil rights and environmental policy analyst and advocate, consultant for federal and state agencies, foundations and nonprofits, environmental program manager, and foundation program officer. She was a contributing author to the landmark report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. This inspired her to go on to help build a social movement that is rooted at the intersection of race, environment, economic, social justice, and public health. Charles Lee currently serves as the Senior Policy Advisor for Environmental Justice at U.S. EPA's Office for Environmental Justice, where he helps to lead EPA's efforts to develop a cumulative impacts framework. He is widely recognized as a true pioneer in environmental justice and has been a mainstay of the EJ movement for four decades. In 1982, he participated in the historic protest against the siting of the PCB landfill in Warren County, North Carolina. In 1987, Mr. Lee was the principal author of the seminal report, Toxics, Waste, and Race in the United States, the first national study to examine the relationship between the geography and demographics of hazardous waste sites. In 1991, he organized the first People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, which coalesced a national movement for environmental justice. Thank you all so much for joining us today to reflect on the summit, the 17 environmental justice principles, and the future of environmental justice. And with this, we can jump right in. Thank you again for joining us. So to begin, 
what was the impetus for developing this summit? I think it's important to understand the historical backdrop to the summit, as well as the specific events that led to it. I think at that point, most people around the country thought that environmental issues did not matter to people of color. And I think that was a widely held view on the part of, I think, most people, including many persons of color. But I think over the years that I have devoted to doing this work since the late 70s and the early 80s with events like Warren County, North Carolina, where 500 people were arrested protesting the uh, siting of a PCB landfill in a Black community and other protests around the country, we knew that this is a real issue in real communities across the country. And when I went to work for the UCC's Commission for Racial Justice, I spent a couple of years just going around the country, doing research, meeting with people, holding meetings, and came to realize uh, the breadth and depth of the environmental issue in uh, communities of color. And we've heard all these stories now, you know, in terms of how farm workers are poisoned by pesticides, in terms of how air pollution affects our Black and Hispanic populations or Black and Latino populations in a disproportionate way. We know about lead poisoning and the disparities in terms of its impact on different uh, population groups. And you can go on on down the line. So it was against that backdrop that the idea of the summit emerged. So in the late 80s, early 90s, a group of EJ activists began to take issue with both the membership or the diversity or lack thereof in the mainstream environmental movement as well as its policies. And a letter was sent to the Big Ten mainstream environmental organizations are uh, taking them to task on these issues. And in the midst of all that, Ben Chavis, who I was working with at that time, he was the director of the UCC's Commission for Racial Justice, had issued a call to have a meeting, a summit meeting, if you will. And I said at that point, I said, you know, given all this backdrop, we do not really just want to have a meeting among a few people but we really want to put this out there because we know that there's a lot of organizing going on in people of color communities. We know that if we brought all these people together, it'd be a way to kind of build on something that can be projected into the future. And in fact, you know, this is a way to then coalesce a movement around environmental justice. I knew that after the publication of Toxic Waste and Race, which was the first national study on the demographics associated with the location of houses, waste sites, more and more people had been calling me around their issues, but then not only around their issues, but also linking that to the fact that these were communities of color and making the link between their, the state of their environment and the historical discrimination that had been taking place for not just decades, but for hundred, uh, more than 100 years. And so we said, you know, this is a nice way of doing that. We started to then pull together this meeting, which we want activists, organizers from across the country to come together and to make that kind of statement. And not just to make that kind of statement, 
but do the work necessary to build the kind of ties among each other. And at that point, as you would hear Bernice and others say, that you know, at that point, communities of color who were working on environmental issues did not know of each other. Like Hazel Johnson, who we all know is the grandmother of environmental justice, she did her organizing in Oakdale uh, Gardens, the black housing project built on top of a landfill in the south side of Chicago. But she had said to me uh, a couple of years before this to say, you know, she wished she could come to a, an environmental meeting where more than just one or two persons of color were in the room. And, you know, that is the show was generally the state of how much relationships we had with each other at that point. So, you know, we wanted to bring together groups in order to kind of build those ties. And we thought like the way to kind of like really coalesce that uh, those relationships and coalesce the movement that that represented was to have a set of principles of environmental justice. In addition to that, a call for action. So I guess in short, that is some of the background to what led to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. I thought that what was happening there, and it was actually not really visible to all of us, but it's very plain to see now what a pivotal event that was. Because I remember writing in the introduction to the proceedings for the People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, how on those four days, October 24th to 27th in 1991, the environmental movement in the United States changed forever. And, uh, and that really did take, that really is true. And you can see how from that point on, you know, a whole new way of doing business around the environment began to emerge. And uh, it has progressed on for the past 30 years to a point where it is now at the center or the policy agenda for the country. Thank you so much for, for that explanation. It's so important to share that history. And Bernice, do you have anything to add to, to this first question for developing the summit? I would add, Charles said, you know, how important it was for people to come together. But in addition to working with Charles and Ben Chavis at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice at the time, I was all also organizing and doing some community public education and training around environmental threats and harms, particularly air pollution in the community that I lived in, in Northern Manhattan. And we have been doing that work now for 34 years, but at the time we were maybe a couple, four years into the organizing. And when we walked into the ballroom after registering for the First National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, and we walked into that ballroom, we being myself and Peggy Shepard, one of the other two co-founders of We Act for Environmental Justice, I remember grabbing Peggy's hand and you know just standing there in awe to see these hundreds of people that had already arrived to be involved in this conversation that we thought we were the only ones that were having this kind of challenge. We might've known about a few other communities, but we didn't know that there were hundreds of communities across the United States and indeed around the world who were similarly impacted. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live, just knowing that we were not alone in and of itself was worth 
the whole experience because we came out of that change, as Charles said, we were changed. Not only was the environmental movement in the United States changed, but we as individuals, we as communities, we as a collective group of people with, with intersecting interests were changed forever. And we would never go back to that point of people not paying attention to our issues, people not acknowledging our suffering people not acknowledging the rampant discrimination that our communities were facing in terms of environmental threats and harms. Nothing would ever be the same after that gathering. And it rivals some other really extraordinary sort of political moments in our country because a social movement was truly born after that convening. And we came out of there tasked with mobilizing and organizing at our regional, local, and sort of identity level. And we've been moving forward ever since. So when I asked Charles this question, he always says he knew. I didn't know. But Charles says he knew that it was going to have the kind of power that it did. I did not know that or appreciate that until we were in the conference and moving through it. And then, of course, by the time we got to the last day, I realized the power of what we had unleashed, but I had no idea what was going to come out of that effort. And so those are my remembrances about the impact and the import of that that first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. Just to build off of what Bernie said, I think what made the difference in terms of why that moment, why that gathering was so powerful and in fact so historic is the fact that it was a real empowering moment. People came to it and got a sense of who they were, where they fit into an issue that everybody said they were not part of. They, in fact, were not asking to be let into the table, into the room, but they were, in fact, not being just being asked to be part of the table. They were going to set the table. And, in fact, the collective experience in terms of the sum total that everybody could see in terms of their own leadership is what really kind of like set that table. And to build a movement, you're not, you're going to have to set your own agenda. You're going to have to create your own leaders. You're going to have to create your own sense of the collective. And you got to do a, a whole bunch of other things in terms of especially a commitment to each other to work with each other along certain principles and to have along certain sets of common goals. And in fact, you know, that's what happened. And I think that's what made the summit such an important moment uh, in the life of this country. Thank you. Thank you so much to you both. Now I just want to ask what were each of your roles in the organizing of the summit? And what did you see as the next steps after the summit ended? So I kind of started to get into this a little bit. I mean, I thought my goal after Toxic Waste and Race, which I kind of always talk about in terms of, you know, I wanted to do something that put the issue of environmental racism on the map. And Toxic Waste and Race um, actually kind of did that both literally and figuratively. But then after that is, you wanted to coalesce a movement around that, around all the activity that generated, right? And that activity was kind of like invisible to each other and invisible to the larger community. So I saw the engagement with the mainstream environmental organization as a moment that you could actually do that. 
And so I put forward to a number of key people like Ben Chavis and Richard Moore and Bob Willard and Dana Austin and Pat Bryant, who we cannot forget about this idea that we have this kind of big national summit in which we are showcasing the work that's been done in a really positive way so that, you know, that becomes the impetus for the creation of a movement. And so I went on the, from there to kind of pull together this planning committee of persons who were on that I just mentioned. And then we started a, I think it took almost two years to, to plan the summit, to have it all come together. And of course, you know, this was a meeting and a gathering and a collection of people that for the environmental movement was never attempted before in terms of at the scale it was and in terms of the kind of issues that it had to get it it was trying to address and the kind of relationships that it was building. And so I don't know that I heard Charles say that he was the principal organizer. So then let me say that on his behalf. He and of course the United Church of Christ and the Commission for Racial Justice. So where Charles worked and Ben was the executive director of the commission. But when we started all of this, Dr. Charles Cobb was the executive director and the church really stepped up and put resources and time and donated their time to this effort. And in addition to that planning committee that Charles talked about, there was also an advisory committee comprised of folks from across the spectrum of environmental justice and civil rights and racial justice and indigenous rights. And I served on that advisory committee. And I don't know how many meetings we had, Charles, leading up to the summit, but I do remember, I think our first meeting was in New Orleans, hosted by Dr. Beverly Wright, who was building the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice at Xavier University at the time. And my role was to help with the organizing and to to get the word out. At the time, I was working at the, I think I was working at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I think I was. And we had an office in Greenville, Mississippi, where we did voting rights advocacy throughout the, the Mississippi Delta and across the Delta region of the Southern United States. And my colleague, Margaret Carey, and I would infuse information about the summit and about the gathering in a lot of the small communities that we were working in and then Margaret was filing voting rights cases in because wherever there was the denial of rights and the denial of equal access and the denial of fair treatment, there usually were issues of environmental injustice and environmental racism present in those places too, particularly in the Deep South. So, you know, it was to get the word out. It was to help with mobilizing people. It was to help with pulling the various workshops together. Charles, how many workshops did we have? It was about 25, I said. And just make sure that people had a productive coming together, but also that we came out of that process, not just having come to a conference, but having determined what were we going to do to alleviate the conditions that so many of us were finding our communities in, the environmental threats, the public health threats daily. What were we going to do differently coming out of that conference than going in? And so that was, that was part of our agenda. And it was a privilege to serve in that way to help make that conference happen. Thanks, Bernice, for that. To build on what Bernice said, 
my goal when I first started pulling together the summit was that we can get 300 or so persons of color, the people of color leaders who are working on environmental issues together for a conversation. That would have been successful. But about a year into this, we realized that I think 1,100 people ended up at the First National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. So we needed to have an infrastructure that was bigger than just this small planning committee, which was really important because you needed that to have as a core group to plan something. But we needed to have an infrastructure that was much bigger. And so we brought together an advisory committee. It was a national advisory committee of about 45 to 50 people from like Bernie said, all, all across the country. And that gave us a lot more legs. And we relied on that committee, those people and others to really go out and do the organizing. That just required people that knew people who were doing work actively to get the word out, to get their information to us, and to make sure that we were mobilizing enough of the resources to get our people there. Because, of course, now most communities of color working on environmental issues do not have adequate resources. And then it was like virtually none. I mean, all these organizations were really working on a shoestring, just trying to get by on a day-to-day basis. So in order to get people there, a big part of the task was making sure we brought adequate resources. And I do want to thank all the foundations and the other organizations that donated resources to help make that happen. I mean, I don't think it would have happened with just the church's resources, but it included resources that we were able to generate with support from many organizations. So that was another important part of this. I think the other thing to keep in mind was this is a meeting about real issues. So we had to get people who really understood these issues, dealt with them directly, and was able to come and be prepared to talk about these issues in a really kind of thoughtful manner, in a way that was really forward-looking. So this is another another piece of it. Let me just give a shout out to one person in particular, and I'm sure Charles would agree. We had a dear friend and colleague, Damu Smith, who served on the advisory committee for the First People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. And at the time, Damu was the Southeast Regional Director for Greenpeace USA. And he was working and organizing and mobilizing in communities across the South region, the Southeastern region, the Gulf Coast region. And everywhere that Damu went, he mobilized people to come to this conference. And I don't know if you agree, Charles, but I would say that Damu probably generated a third of the people who showed up at the conference because they heard about it from him. And he also helped to raise resources to get people from communities that he was organizing in, that Greenpeace was organizing in, to attend the conference. And he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job of getting the word out. And so, you know, lots of people were doing that, but I I just want to raise the late Damu Smith up in particular because I just know he did an extraordinary job of mobilization to get people to that conference. Thanks for that, uh, Bernice. In fact, Damu has a history in terms of, uh, he worked for the commission for many years. So 
he was almost like part of the commission, you know? And so he did a lot of the that work that Bernice talked about, but he also did a lot of the logistics of just getting all the details kind of pulled together. Um, and so, you know, Damu played a really, really, really important role in making the summit run as smoothly as it did. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, next, I want to turn the conversation to the 17 principles of environmental justice for a moment. Charles and Bernice, you've both already mentioned the principles a bit during this conversation, but for the benefit of our listeners, I'll share again a bit of background. One of the key outcomes of the summit was the establishment and publication of the 17 principles of environmental justice, which delegates to the summit drafted and adopted. Since then, these principles have served as a defining document for the grassroots movement for environmental justice. So how did the delegates decide to draft these principles? Well, let me just uh, start by saying, like I said, the planning committee thought ahead of time that one of the key things that we wanted to have happen was the codification of a set of principles of environmental justice as an important founding document of the uh, environmental justice movement. And so we spent a lot of time just kind of thinking that through, what that should actually look like. And we came up with a draft, I think it was like 10 or 11 principles that we brought to the summit. And then we handed that over to the summit delegates and formed a committee to kind of work on them through that process, through their deliberations. That's why it evolved into the 17 principles of environmental justice. And Bernice was one of the persons who was on that committee, and she can tell you more of the details of the deliberations within that group. So when we arrived at the conference, this was the first night we were given those draft principles that Charles talked about, every delegate. And we all looked at them and we thought they were a good start, but we thought they needed to say more. And so we determined that we would develop a committee that would be responsible for refining those principles and then working with the um, the summit attendees to further refine them and make sure that they reflected what the conference participants wanted to say. And so we had every region of the United States broken up into these sort of regional subsets and each region had two coordinators. And then we had some racial and ethnic group coordination as well. And so we gathered up all those people and sort of deputized them to serve as the committee that would become the drafting committee for the principles of environmental justice. And myself and Neftali Garcia Martinez we were together and as well as all the other folks, we also had two young people who were, I think, 19 and 20 at the time. Kikanza Ramsey was a student in Southern California and worked with the Labor Community Strategy Center and Mia Yoshitani. Uh, Mia was a college student at the time. Mia now is has just stepped over as executive director of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, which she led for years and years and years. And she is a force unto herself. But at the time, Kikanza was 19 and Mia was 20 and served on this drafting committee and held their own with all these adults who were on that committee with them. Or I should say they were adults themselves, but 
much, much older than them at the time is the point I'm trying to make. And we all labored together. And so there was this big, huge ballroom where the major convenings when we were all together were happening at the Washington Court Hotel in D.C. And there was an ante room off the back of that big ballroom where the committee and I guess um, sort of the office for the Commission for Racial Justice for the conference was operating. And we were around a table for three days of the conference. And so I like to say that I heard the summit happening on the other side of the wall, but I was actually in this room with these people um, hammering out the principles for environmental justice for most of the conference and had some really interesting experiences when various people spoke and the audience responded so overwhelmingly to some people like Dana Austin. And you could hear it through the walls, um, but you didn't quite know what was going on. But we were working on every single word, every dot, every tittle, every comma, every punctuation mark. And so we would work on various things, talk about debate, various issues. And then every evening, we would have a dinner where we would all be together. And after the dinner, we would usually also have some cultural activity that Damu also organized. And then we would have a session with all of the conference delegates to go over every single word in the draft of that day of the principles of environmental justice. And if I am never part of a collective process again, the fact that I was a part of this collective process will stay with me and resonate with me forever because it was an extraordinary exercise in democratic decision-making and collective participation and you know, real back and forth and sharing about what people thought should be in this document. And I remember at one point, maybe it was that Saturday night, and we were up to about the third or fourth iteration of the draft. And I remember having an exchange with Leah Wise, who was with an organization called Black Workers for Justice out of Durham, North Carolina, a great organizer. And Leah stood up at some point and was sort of, we should say this and we should say that and we should say this. And I remember I was standing at the mic and presiding over this particular session. And I said back to Leah, Leah, we do not have to make these perfect because we can come back again and we can revise them, you know, as we go through time. And Leah said to me, no, we can't. She said, we're only going to do this once and we're not coming back to revise these principles again. And, you know, I remember thinking, well, that's crazy. Of course, we're going to come back and, and revisit these principles again. And we never have. And we've never touched them. When we rolled out of that final Sunday morning, and presented that final draft and people voted them into existence and they felt by so doing that they reflected the will of the body, the collective will of the body and what we wanted to say to the world about how we saw the environment, about how we thought these issues were intersectional, about how we thought indigenous land rights and sovereignty was a fundamental principle, being against war was a fundamental principle, uplifting the International Declaration of Human Rights was a fundamental principle of our work. Those are the, the values that we wanted to articulate. And those are the values that we still stand on 30 and a half years later. Thank you. And those principles are timeless and they're so necessary to this movement. And so I just want to thank you both for the work that was put into the development of, of those principles. So now I want to move us to talking about progress since the summit and the path forward. In both of your views, how has environmental justice evolved 
since 1991? I know that's a big question. Um, but what are some of the key elements that you have noticed in the evolution of environmental justice since this first summit? Well, right at this moment, the president of the United States is aligned with the work that we are trying to do. And we've had support from presidents. We certainly had support from President Clinton, who issued the executive order on environmental justice in 1994. We had support from President Obama and his administration, but we've never had support at the level that we have support from um, President Joseph Biden and Vice President Harris and EPA Administrator Mike Regan and so many other leaders in this administration, we've never seen the kind of support that we have right now. So, you know, some days I have to pinch myself at the level at which we are having these conversations and real work is being done to advance environmental justice. Multiple executive orders have been signed by the president. And so that is one thing that is certainly different, demonstrably different, that the president of the United States has aligned with the work that we are trying to do and with trying to eliminate the decades worth of discrimination that communities of color, low-income communities, rural communities, tribal communities, immigrant communities have experienced in terms of environmental threats and environmental exposures. We've not been in this situation before, in my opinion. So that's one thing that's different. Another thing that's different is the level at which people are recognizing that the work that people have been doing to advance environmental justice is a fundamental piece of our national civil rights agenda, our national human rights agenda, and certainly our national environmental policy agenda. But I don't know that people always appreciated and understood the value of the work that this movement has been doing. And something about what has happened since the murder of George Floyd and so many others, since the, the rising climate crisis and the disproportionate impact of climate change on communities of color, low-income tribal and immigrant communities, something about this moment has let, raised the level of, of, I think, attention, or maybe it's not attention so much as it is clarity that folks can see the value of the work that we've been doing low these many decades. And that wasn't always true. And so that is different. We see a lot of environmental justice leaders are being recognized nationally and internationally for the work that they've done. We see some attention being paid by philanthropy to the work of these organizations, although that certainly has not always been the case. Charles mentioned that this sector is incredibly under-resourced, incredibly under-resourced, and the, the level of disparity in terms of philanthropic grant-making that goes to support environmental justice organizations, particularly those led by people of color and mainstream environmental groups, is gargantuan. It's orders of magnitude difference in terms of where those resources are going. But we do see that changing. We see federal resources being directed to the field at a level that is unprecedented. So we are in a different moment, but the proof will be in the pudding in terms of whether or not people are going to be treated equally before the law. That remains to be an agenda item that we have not fully realized, that we see vigorous enforcement of environmental laws and regulations at the most local levels of government all the way to the highest levels of government. That is still to be realized. And that we see real valuing 
of people's lives, no matter the color of their skin, no matter where they live, no matter their economic status, that that is still to be realized. But we've certainly come a mighty, mighty, mighty long way. And I, for one, am very appreciative to still be here to see this moment come around. I remember in the 1990s, even after the executive order on environmental justice was signed by President Clinton, going to Washington, D.C., and meeting with people, and this was at all levels, and from all different sectors, including government, and just looking at me and saying, so what is environmental justice? And, you know, there's a, such a big change now in terms of a understanding of what environmental justice means and why that's such an important lens by which to understand critical issues of society like climate or infrastructure or health disparities, so on and so forth. And the issue of environmental justice got mainstream in a way that was pretty profound, I think. I mean, even going up to the 2000s, 20 years or so after the summit, you know, most people really did not really understand what environmental justice or environmental racism was. And then, you know, Katrina took place and it kind of really kind of put that front and center in terms of the connection of environmental justice and the climate crisis. And then, of course, Flint took place, the Flint water crisis. And, you know, people got a real understanding got a, of what environmental injustice looked like. And that was the first time the word environmental justice, environmental racism really got into the mainstream political discourse in the 2016 elections. And since then, I think this has been getting to be bigger and bigger in terms of a broader, broader understanding. But people could really understand it, what it was. And with that, I think, came this idea that people started to really um, get a grasp of what you need to do to address it. People started to really get a better understanding of the things that must be done in order to address this kind of issue. And you really, like COVID kind of really opened everybody's eyes. Environmental justice is really about the spatial organization of benefits and burdens, environmental benefits and burdens. The fact that you have such disproportionate mortality and morbidity among Black and Indigenous and people of color communities from COVID was really understood. One of the reasons is how society is spatially organized and in a way that really benefits some and really forces others uh, to bear the burden. And, you know, that became something that people saw even more clearly with George Floyd's murder and, you know, this, this I guess we could say the national reckoning with systemic racism. And I think this is all the backdrop to the things that Bernice talked about as far as the changes that's been taking place within the federal government, but not just within the federal government, because you could see how people are understanding the link between environment and justice, environmental justice and climate, the climate crisis, people are talking about, doing research on, and uh, looking for policy uh, hooks to address things like structural racism and how these are interrelated with things like cumulative impacts, which is a concentration of over time based upon the conscious policies of government to concentrate 
negative environmental uses, unwanted environmental uses in certain communities. And finally, I think the thing that we all need to start to really try to get our hands around is how do you make sure that issues of disproportionate environmental impacts, the distribute inequitable distribution of environmental impacts are being addressed in EPA and government's um, regulatory decision-making. Those are the kind of things that we're grappling with now. And that is like a long way from 30 years ago, when we're just kind of like identifying the issues, we're starting to get better understanding how to organize around them. But now it is at the point where you're saying, you know, how are we going to make uh, real changes? And that involves, you know, a constellation of approaches, some of which are mentioned already, but it comes down to really investing in communities, really getting a handle on systemic and structural racism and inequity, uh, making sure that's being considered as part of our ability to make these part of regulatory decision-making. Vernice, what are you hopeful for in the world of environmental justice now and in the near future? Well, I guess one thing I'm hopeful for, though there is a bit of controversy around it, is a clear acknowledgement that as as Charles and I discovered way back in 1986 and 1987, when we were writing and producing and publishing Toxic Waste and Race, the report, that race continues to operate independent of all other social variables and factors in determining, advancing, and creating circumstances of environmental inequity and environmental harm. And though it continues to make people uncomfortable to acknowledge that, it just is a fact. And all the evidence points in that direction, including EPA's own evidence and EPA's own research. And it is important to acknowledge that, but it is also important to create policy and to change policy and to change practices so that we don't continue to replicate those conditions of racial inequity that serve as the foundation of environmental injustice and environmental harm and environmental racism. It's one thing to acknowledge that those issues are still at play. It's another thing to do some things differently so that we don't continue to get the same kinds of outcomes and replicate the same kinds of harm and visit the same kinds of disparities again and again and again on the same people and places across our country and indeed around the world. So we know it, we know it intellectually, we have plenty of data, peer reviewed and otherwise that point in the same direction, but now we need to behave differently. We need to make different kinds of policy choices. We need to do different kinds of things in terms of the implementation of policy and the enforcement of law. And we need to make real the concept of equal protection before the law, which has been just missing in the environmental space. The reason that we have these inequities and they abound across the country is because there hasn't been equal treatment before the law when it comes to environmental regulation, environmental statutes, and the enforcement thereof. And that has got to change. And we've talked about it for more than 30 years. And now we really need to promulgate different practices and even strengthen our laws to the extent possible or the rules that we promulgate to implement those laws. They need to take into account that people have been treated differently. People have had 
different environmental impacts. People have had different life outcomes because of who they are, because of the color of their skin, because of their ethnicity, because of where they live. And we cannot ignore those factors in those dynamics in terms of how we operate as a nation. And this is a really difficult political moment in which to say we need full enforcement of the Civil Rights Act. We need full enforcement of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. We need full and fair enforcement of all environmental laws and so many other bodies of law, fair housing, right? Agricultural policy, um, science and research, so many different ways that our government operates from the highest level to the most local level. But we need to acknowledge that people are in harm's way, not because of anything they did, but because of who they are. And if we could acknowledge that and center that in the ways we think about policy and practice going forward and the investment of federal, state, local, tribal resources to erase and eradicate those inequities, then we really be seeing some major improvements in, in people's life outcomes. And I think that's where we are. So we know intellectually that this is true. And now what we know has to match up with what we do. Absolutely. One last thing I wanted to add to what I was saying about how things are different and what gives uh, me hope is the fact that environmental justice is truly intergenerational now. I mean, I think that the idea, the values, the approaches, the relationships that all kind of wrapped up in those 17 principles of environmental justice and the environmental justice movement are things that younger generations are really taking to heart and really integrating into the way um, they approach problems in the world. And, and you know, it's kind of like environmental justice about changing behavior, changing what is considered normative in terms of values and methodologies and analysis and, you know, just the relationships that really make for a much more wholesome and healthy society. And so I think that uh, this is something that, you know, I'm hearing from young people as they're taking on these issues, really taking to heart. And I think that's what's really giving me hope. Here, here. Thank you. And I just want to thank you both for, for being here and being a part of this conversation today and all that you've contributed to the environmental justice movement. And so finally, I want to ask if you have final remarks specifically for environmental legal practitioners and decision makers on how they can work to advance environmental justice. Well, I guess the first pe thing is to believe people when they tell you that they are in pain and they are suffering, to believe people, to validate people's lived experience. And for so very long, that has not been the case. People have had to go to extraordinary lengths to prove that they were in harm's way. And it just shouldn't be that hard, particularly when the harm is something that can be life altering, right? So I would say that that is one thing to really validate people's lived experience. And then the challenge is to figure out what are the tools that we have that can redress those circumstances? Or what do we need to do or what tools do we need to create to make sure that some people are not put in more vulnerable circumstances than are others? And also to be fully committed to the concept 
of equal protection before the law for every agency, for every government, no matter where you are, that all people, it is our fundamental right in this country to be treated equally before the law. And that just has not been the case, especially in the environmental space. And so I would say that, you know, we need to be fully committed, as committed as we are to the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and their enforcement and the Safe Drinking Water Act and CERCLA and RICRA and all the other panoply of environmental laws and regulations. As committed as we are to the enforcement of those laws, we have to be equally as committed to um, civil rights law and to anti-discrimination. And I think if we could do that, we would really, really, really make some significant progress in the environmental justice arena. What is a bit of advice for decision makers and government around environmental justice is to really take a democratic governance uh, and take it to heart. And that means go out and engage communities, like Bernice said, to understand what they're saying and what they're lifting up as issues are things that you must deal with. And then making sure that we have the processes to incorporate them into our decision making. That is actually a big uh, sea change in terms of how government does business. And with that, that is the only way you're going to start to build the kind of trust that's necessary to get to a place where we're all like working together to solve these issues. Thank you. And again, I just want to thank you all for, for being here and for everything that you have done to shift environmentalism, to incorporate people and people's needs and people's protection, and to strengthen the environmental justice movement. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities, founded on the rule of law, and Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.org.